I'm Kate Daniels. Our teens have challenges in life. With all the screens around them, their cell phones, tablets, computers, e-readers, and parents feel this challenge as well. So we're going to get some good and important insights about all of this from someone who's done a great deal of research. Dr. Carrie James is a sociologist and longtime researcher of young people's experiences. Along with her co-author, Emily Weinstein, a social scientist, they've written this very important book, Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. Let's meet Carrie James to learn. Carrie James, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kate. And also, a huge thanks for the work that you and your co-author, Emily Weinstein, have done on this book, Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. So this is more important than I could ever express. I think everyone just needs to read and become informed, regardless of whether you have a teenager, a preteen, um, or somehow related to them. It's just really critical reading as far as I'm concerned. Oh, well, that's music to my ears, Kate. Thank you for saying that. But it is true, isn't it? Let's kind of give a background here that you and Emily have been involved in a 10-year-long project doing the research with youth. And it's really interesting, the age span that is involved. In over 10 years, new people have come in and some have moved out of the spectrum. But it's a very important study in obviously, some very important results from it that are in this book behind their screens. Yeah, yeah. So I can provide some background. So Emily Weinstein and I have been, um, we've been working together, as you say, doing research uh, on teens and screens for over a decade and different aspects of their lives with technology, their civic participation and development, how they think about moral and ethical issues, their mental health and well-being, a variety of topics. And in the most recent years, um, uh, we started to do some research um, that was that was a bit broader. We had this opportunity to collect insights from teens across the U.S. And so we actually collected perspectives from more than 3,500 teenagers about how they navigate the digital world and really um, drilled down into their pain points and the things that really worried and stressed them out. Um, And what we learned really actually surprised us in so many ways. And as I as I said, and you said, we've been doing research in this space for a long time, um, and some of the things that we heard really stopped us in our tracks. But I'll also say that um, before before we talk about what stopped us in our tracks, um, was that there was a really unique component of this research, which is that we actually had teens working side by side with us every step of the way. So we collected the survey data. And then uh, during the lockdown period of the pandemic, we recruited a teen advisory council from youth from different parts of the country to co-interpret the data with us um, and try to make sense of what we were seeing. And that was so key because they really helped us identify the stories and insights that they most needed adults to hear. And like I said, there was a lot that really surprised us. 
And so that I want to underscore how critically important it is that you as the researchers and the authors of the book and the authors of the study did collaborate with people. I think it was 22 of the young people that were involved with you on this special council to interpret the data? Yes. Right? 22 teams. And so doesn't that really then underscore how very much more insightful and true it is because of getting that actual perspective from them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they really were able to pull back layers that, you know, we couldn't see. I mean, we're not teenagers now. We were teenagers, and that's something really important that all adults need to not lose sight on sight of, that we all experienced what it was like to be a teen, even if our lives were maybe a little bit different because we didn't have Snapchat or TikTok or these other um, these other technologies. But the things that teens feel and experience so keenly, like the desire to be liked and to uh, get validation and uh, connect with peers and to explore and express their identities, all of those things are so important at that developmental stage. So having teens work with us to really help us make sense of some of what we were seeing was incredible. And, And those conversations really brought new stories about the um, the pain points that teens have today. And to that point of remembering that we were teenagers and what it was like, it was different. But there are some key areas that it is still and remains the same. So to, to before just totally reacting and putting down some hard and fast rules, which is one of the key things that the teens suggest we need to do, is to realize that, you know, stop, reflect, and, and consider conversations. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, I think that you know, as I'm a, I'm a parent of a tween and a teen, and of course, you know, I want to protect my kids. And so my protective instincts will kick in and that will lead me sometimes to lead with the big thing that I don't want my kid to do. I don't want my kid to make a big mistake. I don't want them to get hurt. Um, and, and that's really important. That's, you know, that that's part of being a parent is we have so many fears and we have this protective instinct. Um, But leading with that in conversations with our teens about technology can often lead us astray. It can often shut down conversations before they even get started. So we say things like, just don't sext because, you know, we recognize like this is high stakes. Like if you send a nude picture to someone else, it could get shared out and I don't want you to get hurt. But Starting with that message and then ending the conversation there or just starting with it can be really hard for some teens because it's much more complicated. Uh, in our in our book, in, in our chapter on, um, on sexting, we describe nine reasons why teens sext even when they understand that it's a risky thing to do. Like, and, you know, the reasons really vary from, um, you know, that, of course, like it's, you know, they're, they're curious, 
they're interested, they have a close relationship with someone, they want intimacy, they like someone, to things that are really even um, like really negative, like they feel tremendous pressure and they're even maybe even getting threats to send something. So if we if we just lead with a top level warning without opening up a conversation about how complicated things are, then we're not really meeting teens where they are and providing them with the support that they need. Exactly. And this is something that hopefully is a relationship that develops earlier on that all of a sudden when when your teen is 15 and this becomes an issue is when you want to start opening up. But it's then it's a great challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think starting these, you know, starting the a pattern, if you can, of opening up conversations when um, when kids are, you know, first getting their devices, which is going to vary by family and by kid and what's appropriate there. But um, but really, like setting a pattern, and also, I mean, one of the things that we learned that was actually uh, surprising to us, like you know, as adults, we often assume that teenagers or tweenagers, our kids want around-the-clock access to their devices and that they don't care about their digital habits. But we actually heard really clearly from teens that they don't want to feel dysregulated or they don't want to feel like they can't control their habits. And they say things like, you know, the app TikTok runs my life and I don't like that, even though I like TikTok. And so if we recognize actually that there are some similarities in terms of the worries that we have for our kids, like they have those same worries, but some of the reasons why they stay connected to their devices, even when they recognize that they, you know, that can be a problem or it can get out of hand. If we don't realize what's sort of behind that, um, then we're like, we're losing an opportunity to see like the pull of the device is something that we all share and we can create a team-based approach and work together um, when we need to, to resist it. And that is a such a key insight that the kids, the teens, feel that, that they don't really want that, but it, it is a dilemma for them. So then to have the adults in their life come down and say, you can't do this, all of a sudden it really turns things around and they start defending it just because that's the nature of us when we're teenagers and and wanting to kind of confront authority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's part of the reason when we were talking a moment ago about the power of and the importance of opening up conversations and really like being curious. We often talk about leaning into curiosity and non-judgmental curiosity is a really um, important starting point for that. Um, But one of the most important power moves we can make as parents is to not just ask about the negative, to really open up conversations about like what's really fun about TikTok. Like why is it so compelling? Not just, I mean, we know that the design features of apps like TikTok are really compelling, the infinite scroll and um, and things like notifications, but there's content there that's really and interesting and even in many cases really like learning rich or supportive of teens well-being so we have to also acknowledge and find out more about some of the real positive pulls to the screen 
instead of going into conversations assuming that everything is negative. And, you know, if we leave with, like, what is it about Instagram that makes you depressed, then teens are going to be reluctant to answer because they know that it's a leading question and that any answer they give is just going to confirm our worst suspicions that social media is all bad. There's nothing good about it. And so to reframe the question, make it more open-ended, like, what is so interesting or what do you find interesting about it? Right, right. What is so fun and interesting? What's so compelling? What are you learning? What do you... Um, what inspires you? I mean, the, one of the real upsides of doing this uh, teen advisory work during the height of the lockdown and the pandemic is that uh, the teens on our advisory council gave voice to all the different things that they turn to um, on social media or, you know, through friend networks on, um, you know, group chats and things like that that were so positive. So um, teens talked about things like book talk. And then, so that's the corner of TikTok where teens who are really into reading post peer reviews of novels and other books that they're really into. And they exchange those with others or they create, um, you know, like online forums where they can discuss their interests. They also talked about like well-being, like spiritual TikTok and, and well-being accounts and places where they thought um, you know, we often talk about the like the ways in which highlight reels on Instagram can be really toxic and lead to negative social comparison. But there are also all these unbelievable like body positivity accounts and ways in which teens really seek out and find positive sources for their well-being online. And that was really powerful during the pandemic um, or during the lockdown part of the pandemic. I keep not wanting to say that during the pandemic because it's not over yet. (laughs) True enough. Yes. And it varies and it fluctuates, you know, depending on what's going on at a certain time. So, yes, during uh, that time, the lockdown really did have a huge impact on kids. And I think it'll take time for us to really see um, how, how all of that plays out. It'll take a decade or more. Oh, indeed. Right. So let's talk further about some of the other kind of insights you found that really were surprising, Carrie. Yeah. So one of um, one of the other big things um, that that we took away is um, adults often really focus on um, when they think about the negative parts of growing up in a, in a digital world, they really focus on things like cyberbullying um, and these sort of explicit, patterned, repeated forms of aggression. And cyberbullying, granted, is a very serious issue. And for teens who experience it and tweens who experience it, it's really hard. Um, what young people gave voice to to us that was really much more surprising is the way in which so much of conflict and meanness shows up in much more subtle forms, much more ambiguous forms on social media. So teens would tell us about things like being strategically cropped out of a photo from a social event or being the only one in a group picture who doesn't get tagged. And they're left to wonder, was this just an oversight or is this meaningful? Is this an intentional jab? They also talked about the ambiguity of being left 
on read or on delivered. So, so this is about read receipts. So if you send someone a message and you can see if you're using an iPhone, for example, you can see that the message has been read. Um, and then it's not reciprocated. That time lapse between when the message has been read and when it's reciprocated is really, really meaningful to teens. Um, and it can say something about the status of their relationship. It can say something about whether you're being sidelined or um, what's happening with your friendship. But things like that don't really fit into the precise definition of cyberbullying that, you know, that we might be more key to. There are other features like we think about the app Snapchat, and it actually has a feature on it called the Snap Map. And so you can look on the Snap Map and you can see where your friends are in real time. And so if you look on the Snap Map and you see that all of your friends are together in one place, you instantly know that you've been left out. And that's really hard. That's a lot of pressure. I And i that's news to me. I mean, this is, some of this digital stuff is so foreign. Uh, I'm amazed at what then teens, these young people uh, are knowledgeable about, and it's a foreign language to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's where the the importance of like opening up those conversations is really important. I mean, we do as adults, we may not understand the way Snapchat and Snap Maps work. And so that's where like being curious and hearing more of the details is really important but we still have wisdom to share because once we hear what's going on we all like if we can remember back to like how hard it was when we were an adolescent to realize that we had been excluded from from you know some kind of event that's where we can really make a strong connection and and you know really conjure up a sense of empathy we often say that you know what teens experience today is you know we can all remember back to like the social dynamics of the middle school lunchroom where you walk in and you're looking for a place to sit and you're constantly monitoring like your social status and your popularity. And now for teens, it's like that middle school lunchroom is on the screen in front of them 24 seven. And you have all these social life analytics that are public, they're accessible, and they create it's tons of new social information to stress and obsess over. And so if we we may not understand what like that social information looks like, but we probably can all remember um, the hard social dynamics in middle and maybe even in high school. And when social groups shifted around, and you would be in a group one day, and you then you would feel excluded the next. Um, and this is ramped up now, but those same feelings are the things that we went through. Yes, just a. Uh... A, a different lens on it with a, a few added features like a smartphone uh, in, in the picture. So, yes, it's critical then to have the, the curiosity, keep those lines of communication open, read the book because, again, there's just so much in here that provides insight. Let's take a moment, Carrie, to just mention how the book is designed to, with uh, each of the chapters, having a scenario, a, a true-to-life scenario, and discussing that through the chapter, and then ending chapters with what teens would like their parents to know. Yeah, yeah. We intentionally opened each chapter with a story um, that we heard from a teen, 
um, about an experience that they had that really captured their pain point, whether it be about um, about friendship burdens and dilemmas or about um, about about sexting pressures or about the digital footprint or about civic issues and the pressures that are unfolding as teens participate in a connected world and want to express themselves in civic and political ways. Um, all of those things really, really distill and clarify in the authentic voices of young people what they're going through. And then from there, we unpack some of the themes that we saw that were a lot more specific and connect those themes to other research, research from developmental science and brain science and sociology and, and other places. Um, and then, you know, we and we weave youth voices throughout. And then, as you say, we end each chapter with this this distillation or this summary of what teens wish adults most understood about about the topic at hand, whether it be footprints or sexting or um, or the friendship dilemmas and patterns that they feel. So it is so comprehensive from that standpoint and so readable. And again, you know, if we have any kind of connection. Um, with young people, uh, and even if we don't, just to have an awareness so we can really be a, a positive leader, I guess, on the scene and, and providing guidance and uh, improving things along the way. Absolutely. Or just like, we're just really tuning in to the very, uh, the things that teens are thinking, but they may not Rest to us. So some of the some of the answers to the questions like what do you wish adults understood? They were really poignant. Like you know, I remember one teen saying, you know, then this is at the end of our our friendship chapter. Just because you have a lot of followers on Instagram actually doesn't mean that you have a lot of friends. So essentially, he was saying like my parents see that oh you have so many followers on Instagram you must. You must be very popular, but that's not what it, you know, there, there's this pattern of default following and friending people on social media apps that can give an impression that someone is feeling very socially connected and that they have a, a very large and robust group of friends, but it's not always the case. They also said other things like, you know, not all the time we spend on our phones is fun for us, and some of it can be very stressful and upsetting. And actually, this reminds me of another another thing that really surprised us in this latest round of research, which is about the hidden toll that um, that we heard about about today's adolescent mental health crisis. So, um, you know, we're all very alert to the fact that that rates of adolescent depression and loneliness and hopelessness are really high and and it is a true crisis right now but what we hadn't really appreciated is the hidden toll that's unfolding whereby even if a teen is not personally struggling themselves they are more likely than ever to have someone in their network or their peer group who is and social media has made it so that teens are seeing posts from others that raise a lot of puzzles about whether when and how to respond like digital cries for help so, um, you know, and so they're seeing cries for help, like insinuation of someone really struggling or potentially 
um, some suicidal ideation and not really knowing what to do and seeing that on social media or having a close friend who's reaching out to them over text message and feeling tremendous pressure to be available to that close friend around the clock. And technically, you can be available around the clock. You can be available 24-7, and teens feel like, you know, I have to stay connected to my phone in order to be there for my friend because adults always say when you're a good friend, you'd be there for your friends when they need you. Um, but at the same time, we're saying, like, can't you just get off your phone? Um, so, you know, just to unpack a little bit more around that that wish that adults would understand that not all the time we spend on our phones is fun for us, and some of it can be very stressful. So tuning into that complexity is really important. And that one in particular is hugely important. It's literally life and death in some cases. And to be able to tune into that and to be able to uh, have a conversation about it, a discussion to the degree that, that is uh, the teen will open up to, to, to be a support. Uh, wow, that one is really huge. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really, it's really hard. And it just underscored to both me and Emily, again, who's done research in the space for a long time, that there, there is so much that we're missing. When we just sort of observe teens and their behaviors, on their phone and, you know, we see them very attached to their device and think, oh, you're addicted to social media. You can't get off your phone when, you know, what might actually be pulling them to their device is a sense of empathy for a friend who's really struggling. And, you know, empathy is something that we all really value and we want to nurture in our kids. Yeah, absolutely. Then on the other end of that spectrum, somewhat I see, uh, was a comment from a very young uh, a young member of the people responding who mentioned playing games on their on their phones and how you know they do engage in that but this was so astute of them like thinking what will it be like when I'm older and will I see that I've wasted my childhood playing this game that means so little or means nothing so that was incredible to have that level of awareness yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that really plays into what we were discussing earlier. Like teens are really, they don't want to feel dysregulated. They do want to um, feel like their their habits are in control, but there is so much that's um, kind of pulling them in. And so, the, you know, we think about the design features that keep them looking at their screen, the way that games are designed to keep you on, uh, on social media, things like infinite scrolls so we never reach the end of our news feed, notifications that activate that neural response so that we want to go back and or go to our, our phone and check right away who's reaching out to me, what are what are we saying, what are they saying? And, you know, if we think about it, we're all really vulnerable to these designs. When I hear the the, uh, the ding of a text message, I want to look right away too. But the polls are really, they're really amplified for teens because of the way um, they're so primed f- to be focused on peer feedback and validation and connection with peers. Right. So this is so readable, the book Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing 
and adults are missing. And Carrie, of course, we can pick up a copy of the book at any of our favorite book sources, correct? You absolutely can. And, it's, and you can also find out more information on BehindTheirScreens.com. Great. Yes. The website is also then a, a great wealth of information. It's going to be kept updated so that, you know, the latest and uh, most more significant findings, perhaps, or more comments uh, will be appearing. Yeah, we will we will keep um, keep uh, our website up to date with new resources all the time. But um, thank you, Kate. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate the work that you've done. Um, this couldn't be any more critical for for all of us, and especially for our young people as they progress through life and are building a better future. So, thank you, Carrie James. You're welcome. Be well. This is a Sunday morning shout-out, and it's about Cancer Pathways. Cancer Pathways is proud to present the 25th anniversary of the Surviving with Style fashion show. Starting as an idea to celebrate life and living each day to its fullest, it was because of this fashion show, four years later, Cancer Pathways, formerly known as Gilda's Club, opened its doors. So a little bit about the background. Gilda's Club Seattle, named in honor of Gilda Radner, who, when describing the emotional and social support she received when she had cancer, called for such a place of participation, education, hope, and friendship to be made available for people with cancer and their families and friends everywhere. The New York flagship facility opened in June 1995. Anna Gottlieb, the executive director of Cancer Pathways, saw a story about Gilda's Club and felt Seattle could benefit from such an organization, and that became her work and passion for nearly the past 20 years. Cancer Pathways provides the support for the entire family, extended family, that is facing a cancer diagnosis. Countless thousands of all ages have felt the benefits of Cancer Pathways, the Big Gala happens October 22nd at the Westin in Seattle. So many amazing survivors have walked the runway. This year, there are 25, ranging in age from 3 to 80. Check the website to find out how you can be there. If you can't, you can still support the incredible work of Cancer Pathways with a donation or finding out about volunteer opportunities. Find all of this at cancerpathways.org. Celebrate life, hope, and overcoming. That's cancerpathways.org.